A Voyage to San Francisco From Memoirs of General W. T. Sherman by William T. Sherman This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Voyage to San Francisco by William T. Sherman during the stay of my family in New Orleans, we enjoyed the society of the families of General Twiggs, Colonel Myers, and Colonel Bliss, as also of many citizens, among whom was the wife of Mr. Day, sister to my brother-in-law, Judge Bartley. General Twiggs was then one of the oldest officers of the Army. His history extended back to the War of 1812, and he had served in early days with General Jackson in Florida and in the Creek campaigns. He had fine powers of description, and often entertained us at his office with accounts of his experiences in the earlier settlements of the Southwest. Colonel Bliss had been General Taylor's adjutant in the Mexican War, and was universally regarded as one of the most finished and accomplished scholars in the Army, and his wife was a most agreeable and accomplished lady. Late in February, I dispatched my family up to Ohio in the steamboat Tecumseh, Captain Pierce, disposed of my house and furniture, turned over to Major Reynolds the funds, property, and records of the office, and took passage in a small steamer for Nicaragua, en route to California. We embarked early in March, and in seven days reached Greytown, where we united with the passengers from New York, and proceeded by the Nicaragua River and Lake for the Pacific Ocean. The river was low, and the little steam canal boats, four in number, grounded often so that the passengers had to get into the water to help them over the bar. In all, there were about 600 passengers, of whom about 60 were women and children. In four days we reached Castillo, where there is a decided fall, passed by a short railway, and above this fall we were transferred to a larger boat, which carried us up the rest of the river and across the beautiful Lake Nicaragua, studded with volcanic islands. Landing at Virgin Bay, we rode on mules across to San Juan del Sur, where lay at anchor the propeller S.S. Lewis, Captain Partridge, I think. Passengers were carried through the surf by natives to small boats and rode off to the Lewis. The weather was very hot, and quite a scramble followed for staterooms, especially for those on deck. I succeeded in reaching the purser's office, got my ticket for a berth in one of the best staterooms on deck, and just as I was uh, turning from the window, a lady, who was a fellow passenger from New Orleans, a Mrs. D., called to me to secure her and her lady friend berths on deck, saying that those below were unendurable. I spoke to the purser, who at that moment, perplexed by the crowd and clamor, answered, I must put their names down for the other two berths in your stateroom, but as soon as the confusion is over I will make some change whereby you shall not suffer. As soon as these two women were assigned to a stateroom, they took possession, and I was left out. Their names were recorded as, quote, Captain Sherman and Ladies, quote. As soon as things were quieted down, I remonstrated with the purser, who at last gave me a lower berth in another and larger stateroom on deck, with five others, so that my two ladies had the stateroom all to themselves. 
At every meal the steward would come to me and say, "Captain Sherman, will you bring your ladies to the table?" And we had the best seats in the ship. This continued throughout the voyage, and I assert that "my ladies" were of the most modest and best behaved in the ship. But some time after we had reached San Francisco one of our fellow passengers came to me and inquired if I personally knew Mrs. D with flaxen tresses, who sang so sweetly for us, and who had come out under my especial escort. I replied I did not, more than uh, the chance acquaintance of the voyage, and what she herself had told me, viz., that she expected to meet her husband, who lived about McColumney Hill. He then informed me that she was a woman of the town. Society in California was then decidedly mixed. In due season the steamship Lewis got under way. She was a wooden ship, long and narrow, bark-rigged, and a propeller, very slow, moving not over eight miles an hour. We stopped at Acapulco, and in eighteen days passed in sight of Point Pinoa at Monterey, and at the speed we were traveling expected to reach San Francisco at 4 a.m. the next day. The cabin passengers, as was usual, bought of the steward some champagne and cigars, and we had a sort of ovation for the captain, purser, and surgeon of the ship, who were all very clever fellows, though they had a slow and poor ship. Late at night all the passengers went to bed, expecting to enter the port at daylight. I did not undress, as I thought the captain could and would run in at night, and I lay down with my clothes on. About 4 a.m. I was awakened by a bump and sort of grating of the vessel, which I thought was our arrival at the wharf in San Francisco. But instantly the ship struck heavily, the engines stopped, and the running to and fro on deck showed that something was wrong. In a moment I was out of my stateroom at the bulwark holding fast to a stanchion and looked over the side at the white and seething water caused by her sudden and violent stoppage. The sea was comparatively smooth, the night pitch dark, and the fog deep and impenetrable. The ship would rise with the swell and would come down with a bump and quiver that was decidedly unpleasant. Soon the passengers were out of their rooms, undressed, calling for help, and praying as though the ship were going to sink immediately. Of course she could not sink, being already on the bottom, and the only question was as to the strength of hull to stand the bumping and straining. Great confusion for a time prevailed, but soon I realized that the captain had taken all proper precautions to secure his boats, of which there were six at the Devitts. These are the first things that steerage passengers make for in case of shipwreck, and right over my head I heard the captain's voice say in a low tone, but quite decided, Let go that falls, or damn you, I'll blow your head off. This seemingly harsh language gave me great comfort at the time, and on saying so to the captain afterward, he explained that it was addressed to a passenger who attempted to lower one of the boats. Guards composed of the crew were soon posted to prevent any interference with the boats, and the officers circulated among the passengers the report that there was no immediate danger, that fortunately the sea was smooth and we were simply aground, and must quietly await daylight. They advised the passengers to keep quiet, 
and the ladies and children to dress and sit at the doors of their staterooms, there to await the advice and action of the officers of the ship, who were perfectly cool and self-possessed. Meantime the ship was working over a reef. For a time I feared she would break in two, but as the water gradually rose inside to a level with the sea outside, the ship swung broadside to the swell, and all her keel seemed to rest on the rock or sand. At no time did the sea break over the deck, but the water below drove all the people up to the main deck and to the promenade deck, and thus we remained for about three hours, when daylight came. But there was a fog so thick that nothing but water could be seen. The captain caused a boat to be carefully lowered, put in her a trustworthy officer with a boat compass, and we saw her depart into the fog. During her absence the ship's bell was kept tolling. Then the fires were all out, the ship full of water, and gradually breaking up, wriggling with every swell like a willow basket, the sea all round us full of the floating fragments of her sheeting, twisted and torn into a spongy condition. In less than an hour the boat returned, saying that the beach was quite near, not more than a mile away, and had a good place for landing. All the boats were then carefully lowered and manned by crews belonging to the ship. A piece of the gangway on the leeward side was cut away, and all the women and a few of the worst scared men were lowered into the boats which pulled for shore. In a comparatively short time the boats returned, took new loads, and the debarkation was afterward carried on quietly and systematically. No baggage was allowed to go on shore except bags or parcels carried in the hands of passengers. At times the fog lifted so that we could see from the wreck the tops of the hills and the outline of the shore, and I remember sitting on the upper or hurricane deck with the captain, who had his maps and compass before him, and was trying to make out where the ship was. I thought I recognized the outline of the hills below the mission of Dolores, and so stated to him, but he called my attention to the fact that the general line of hills bore northwest, whereas the coast south of San Francisco bears due north and south. He therefore concluded that the ship had overrun her reckoning and was then to the north of San Francisco. He also explained that the passage up being longer than usual, viz. eighteen days, the coal was short that at the time the firemen were using some cut-up spars along with the slack of coal, and that this fuel had made more than usual steam, so that the ship must have glided along faster than reckoned. This proved to be the actual case, for in fact the steamship Lewis was wrecked on April 9, 1853, on Duckworth Reef, Bolinas Bay, about 18 miles above the entrance to San Francisco. The captain had sent ashore the purser in the first boat with orders to work his way to the city as soon as possible to report the loss of his vessel and to bring back help. I remained on the wreck till among the last of the passengers, managing to get a can of crackers and some sardines out of the submerged pantry, a thing the rest of the passengers did not have, and then I went quickly ashore in one of the boats. The passengers were all on the beach under a steep bluff, had built fires to dry their clothes, but had seen no human being, and had no idea where they were. Taking along with me a fellow passenger, a young chap about eighteen years old, I scrambled up the bluff and 
walked back toward the hills, in hopes to get a good view of some known object. It was then the month of April, and the hills were covered with the beautiful grasses and flowers of that season of the year. We soon found horse paths and tracks, and following them we came upon a drove of horses grazing at large, some of which had saddle marks. At about two miles from the beach we found a corral, and thence, following one of the strongest marked paths, in about a mile more we descended into a valley and, on turning a sharp point, reached a board shanty with a horse picketed nearby. Four men were inside eating a meal. I inquired if any of the Lewis's people had been there. They did not seem to understand what I meant when I explained to them that about three miles from them and beyond the old corral, the steamer Lewis was wrecked and her passengers were on the beach. I inquired where we were, and they answered, at Bolinas Creek, that they were employed uh, at a sawmill just above, and were engaged in shipping lumber to San Francisco, that a schooner loaded with lumber was then about two miles down the creek, waiting for the tide to get out, and doubtless if we would walk down that they would take us on board. I wrote a few words back to the captain, telling him where he was, and that I would hurry to the city to send him help. My companion and I then went on down the creek, and soon descried the schooner anchored out in the stream. On being hailed, a small boat came in and took us on board. The captain willingly agreed for a small sum to carry us down to San Francisco, and as the whole crew consisted of a small boy about twelve years old, we helped him to get up his anchor and pole the schooner down the creek and out over the bar on a high tide. This must have been about 2 p.m. Once over the bar, the sails were hoisted and we glided along rapidly with a strong, fair northwest wind. The fog had lifted so we could see the shores plainly and the entrance to the bay. In a couple of hours, we were entering the bay and running wing and wing. Outside, the wind was simply the usual strong breeze, but as it passes through the head of the Golden Gate, it increases, and there, too, we met a strong ebb tide. The schooner was loaded with lumber, much of which was on deck, lashed down to ring bolts with rawhide thongs. The captain was steering, and I was reclining on the lumber, looking at the familiar shores as we approached Fort Point when I heard a sort of cry and felt the schooner going over. As we got into the throat of the heads, the force of the wind meeting a strong ebb tide drove the nose of the schooner underwater. She dove like a duck, went over on her side, and began to drift out with the tide. I found myself in the water, mixed up with pieces of plank and ropes, struck out and swam around to the stern, got on the keel and clambered up on the side. Satisfied that she could not sink by reason of her cargo, I was not in the least alarmed, but thought two shipwrecks in one day not a good beginning for a new peaceful career. Nobody was drowned, however. The captain and crew were busy in securing such articles as were liable to float off, and I looked out for some passing boat or vessel to pick us up. We were drifting steadily out to sea, while I was signaling to a boat about uh, three miles off toward Sausalito, and saw her tack and stand toward us. 
I was busy watching this sail boat when I heard a Yankee's voice close behind saying, "'This is a nice mess you've got yourselves into.' And looking about, I saw a man in a small boat, who had seen us upset, and had rowed out to us from a schooner anchored close under the fort. Some explanations were made, and when the sailboat coming from Sausalito was near enough to be spoken to, and the captain had engaged her to help his schooner, we bade him good-bye, and got the man in the small boat to carry us ashore, and land us at the foot of the bluff just below the fort. Once there I was at home, and we footed it up to the Presidio. Of the sentinel I inquired who was in command of the post, and was answered, Major Merchant. He was not in then, but his adjutant, Lieutenant Gardner, was. I sent my card to him. He came out and was much surprised to find me covered with sand and dripping with water, a good specimen of a shipwrecked mariner. A few words of explanation sufficed. Horses were provided, and we rode hastily into the city, reaching the office of the Nicaragua Steamship Company, C.K. Garrison, agent, about dark, just as the purser had arrived by a totally different route. It was too late to send relief that night, but by daylight next morning two steamers were en route for and reached the place of the wreck in time to relieve the passengers and bring them and most of their baggage. I lost my carpet-bag, but saved my trunk. The Lewis went to pieces the night after we got off, and had there been an average sea during the night of our shipwreck, none of us probably would have escaped. End of A Voyage to San Francisco by William T. Sherman